Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. And how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Recovering from the slings and arrows of a busy yesterday, which we'll talk about in a moment. I wrote a piece for the Cult of Hockey, oh, which yeah, turns out to have been a little controversial. But yes, I, well, Bruce, I, I, rarely, right? I rarely strongly disagree with you, but on that, that occasion, I think I did. I think, okay. I, I, think, I, think, uh, I think that I would make use a different comparison as my primary mode of making the judgment that you made on Milan Lucic, James Neal. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the way, like the way you did it, you came to the logical conclusion. But I'm going to say I would make the comparison in a different way, and we'll get to that. So we're going to talk about your who won the Milan Lucic trade. We'll talk about solving the Oilers' problem on the defense, the three not-so-easy-to-make changes that Ken Holland could do to what I to transform the Oilers' defense. And I think it really would transform it, what I'm suggesting here. And I'm almost convinced that I'm right about what I'm suggesting in print. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about Yesapulia Yarvi's latest uh, indication that he's coming back to Edmonton, a piece by Mark Spector that we'll re- reference. Is there anything else? Oh, yeah, Raphael Lavoie might be going to Europe. Uh, so he's. We'll, we'll just quickly deal with that. Raphael Lavoie is the Oilers' second pick last year, had a really good year in the QMJHL. He is a, a real big sniper, played for Team Canada junior team, and he's following the mass exodus of young prospect players to Europe. And I don't quite completely get this, Bruce, because COVID's in Europe as much as it is in North America, but they seem to have a different attitude, maybe a bit less, although they're, they're, they're really having an uptick in cases now as well, I understand, in Europe. But there seems to be a different attitude in some of the different countries about COVID, and I think Sweden, case in point, where they've always been a lot more, let's just keep society going. And it looks like they're going to be keeping their hockey league going. And, right. and he's, Lavoie, is thinking of going to uh, Rogel in uh, Rogel Hockey Club in the Swedish league, following just, you know, almost every top prospect has now taken that route. Well, yeah, what's different about uh, Lavoie is that he's the first North American born of the prospects to go over there. All the other guys are, you know, they're from Sweden, they're from Russia, they're from Finland, they're returning back to their domestic leagues. There's yeah. like six Oilers that were already on loan to... Maximov, uh, Samarukov. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Broberg, Berglund, uh, Nima Line, and Lenstrom. But they're, you're right, they're all playing in their, you know, personal dom- domestic leagues. And for Raphael Lavoie, it's a huge change to go over play on the wide ice and you know potentially like a fantastic learning experience for the kid uh but uh uh the next step that says they really don't think the ahl is going to be normal this year at all and at least because apparently the deal is if he signs with rogel he's there until their season is over there's no out clause saying he can come over uh, you know, the minute that they start up over here, he's there until they're done. Then he can come over. Works for me. I mean, I. Mm-hmm. the only problem is that sometimes younger players don't get much chance to play in the European men's leagues. Like Broberg only played 14 minutes right. um, last year. So we'll see how much ice time Maximov, Samarukov and Lavoie all get. Hopefully, Raphael Lavoie will be on, at least on the third line. Like he'll be a regular player at least on the third line. You know, which is might that's might all he have been in Bakersfield this year. I think Bruce of the AHL will do, you know, at the very least, they can get together and, you know, you you could have break the AHL up into 16 units and they could play each other without any fans just in kind of exhibition games, you know, or not exhibition games, but just regular season games. And and, um, the NHL would have to foot the bill for that. But it's hard to imagine that they won't want that kind of development for their players. And it's going to be different. But they, the AHL had already moved towards that model in California, where the California teams had almost played, they played most of their games against each other already. Mm-hmm. And um, they'll just cut out all the travel. And, and um, there'll be an expense to that. Obviously, they'll have to play, pay the players' salaries. I don't know if they canceled the, the season altogether for the AHL teams, if they would pay the salaries or not. But in terms of just 
the investment in your own business in the future, you can't cancel it really, I don't think. In some ways it's more important than anyone that those young players would play, that you'd subsidize that rather than subsidize the NHL product because uh, you need those young players for the future of your team to develop and, and get better. So I think there will be an AHL season. It, it might be 40 games um, or 50 games or 30 games with a lot more practices, but maybe that's a good thing too for development uh, for players six, that age. Might be six tournaments for all we know. That's right, know. which would be kind of cool and different. You know, it, it might be different, but better for development. Like this, all of this games, is there's an economic component to playing all these games. Whereas it's not necessarily the best model for for player development. We see in U.S. college players playing 40 games, 30 games, and and they develop very well under those circumstances. So um, it's not necessarily a disaster for player development is what I'm trying to say. If they play 40 games, like two tournaments, two big tournaments, or not two, but like six big tournaments, or as you're suggesting. So Bruce, let's move on to the Lucic thing, because that's, you know, you just got beat up so bad on the internet. I'm just kidding about that, but uh, you did take a bit of flack for your opinion. So let's yep. let's let's hear let's hear you make the case that the Calgary Flames, by a little bit at least, won the Lucic deal this year. What are your strongest points in your favor for this absolutely crazy argument that you're making? Right. Well, <laughs> I guess there, there's a number of ways to look at it. I mean, some would point out that it was a win-win and that both teams won the trade. And Would you say that? Were both better off for uh, the change of address. Uh, I said, from a Calgary perspective, it worked out not too bad because they got, uh, they had their own issues with James Neal, who yes. they moved along after a very poor first season in Calgary where he didn't really fit in anywhere uh, in the lineup. And he scored only seven goals and 19 points for five and three quarter million dollars with four more years to run. So they were pretty anxious to move along James Neal. And they took on uh, a slightly more onerous contract with way more onerous terms and and with respect to, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse contract that we've talked about that had term, cap hit, uh, no movement clause, and a bonus structure that prohibited a buyout from being feasible at all. And Neil's contract only had the first two of those things, the term and the cap hit, which were very similar for running, you know, both had four years to run at the time the trade was made. So uh, what Calgary got back was basically three different uh, components of the trade that all worked in their favor. Uh, One was that the orders retained not just the difference between the $250,000 difference between Neal's and Lucic's contract, but three times that amount, $750,000. Meaning the orders effectively paid Neal $6.5 million uh, for this and subsequent seasons compared to five and a quarter million for Lucic. And you can say, well, those contracts are similar, but there's a, you know, a million and a quarter dollars. That's, you know, that's a significant difference between them. That's currently in Calgary's favor. Uh, the second item was, uh, and was the third round draft pick that was, uh, conditional on two things happening. Uh, Neil scoring 21 goals and Neil outscoring Lucic by at least 10 goals. And basically, he scored those 10 goals in October right off the hop. He never did get to 21, but the NHL, in its vast wisdom, decided that let's prorate the games that were missed at the end of the season and assume uh, Neil would have scored at the rate that he did uh, for the previous five months, even though he'd scored zero goals at all for the previous three months. Uh, And they uh, decided that he would have scored 21 goals if the season had been completed. Therefore, the Oilers would owe Calgary the third-round draft choice, and the, the only uh, uh, the the only thing that worked out a little bit for Edmonton was they've given the Oilers the choice between giving them that pick in 2020 or 2021. But either way, the team has lost a third-round draft choice in the next two years for a clause that was never reached. You know, I, I frankly am quite a bit bitter about that. You know, the league is happy to prorate. Uh, goals that weren't scored in games that weren't played, but they're not happy to prorate uh, team points in games that weren't played. And, and an Oilers team that was comfortably in the playoff spot 
no prorating there. They had to play against another team to play their way into the playoffs, and of course they lost out. And so it didn't seem like the league applied a very consistent hand, other than the one consistent thing seems to be they rule against the Oilers every chance they get. And I'm starting to get more and more choked by that as these decisions pile up over the years. So Calgary's got, now they've got the cap relief, and they've got uh, the third round draft pick. And now the major item, which is sort of transparent from a competitive standpoint, but which is super significant, I think, is that the Oilers had prepaid so much of the front-loaded portion of Luchitz's contract, including the big bonus that came due two days before the trade happened, that uh, in in real dollars terms, uh, this, the Flames saved $9 million and the Oilers paid, or Daryl Cates paid an extra $9 million to, uh, to pay Neil full amount of the remaining four years of his contract versus the residual that was left on the Lucic deal because they'd already paid him 26 of the 42 million dollars that's you know nine million bucks David that's like a thousand season tickets for a year the revenue that you would get from a thousand season tickets for for a year and that's you know you can say owners got deep pockets it doesn't matter to the fans but I mean that's a yet a third win that Calgary got out of this trade and and for that, you would think, well, the Oilers, I mean, because he outscored uh, Lucic, that uh, the Oilers got much the better player. And many people would argue that. But when I looked at their stats, uh, Neil packed in the goals at, on the power play, again, especially early in the season. But on five-on-five five play, there was very little to choose between them. They each played about 700 minutes. Uh, Lucic got 12 points. Neil got 11. They were each below one point per 60, which is a fourth-line scoring rate and pathetic for a fourth-line player in either case. And uh, Lucic, though the Flames were outscoring the other team by two goals when Lucic was on the ice five-on-five. The Oilers got outscored by 10 goals with Neil on the ice. So, you know, the the advantage of having the superior player from the deal is not really backed up from the statistics other than that special team's burst where, where Neil did produce uh, and I just think the Oilers paid and paid and paid again to buy this flexibility and it is important the flexibility that now they don't have to protect a player in the expansion draft they have a guy they can buy out which uh, they couldn't do with Lucic uh, you know there, there's more choices that they have but I mean they aren't wonderful choices. I mean, if you only win a trade by buying out a guy and paying him millions of dollars to not play for you, that just goes to say you were in a bad spot to begin with. And uh, I, I jokingly compared Lucic, the contract. You know, some guy was giving me feedback on the internet. I said, it reminds me of Lucic's contract, reminds me of what uh, Dallas Aiken said about Will Acton. It's a smell that won't leave the room. Right. The player is gone, but the contract is, you know, it's kind of still there. We're still paying for that contract and we're paying for it now in multiple ways, including that lost draft choice. So here's what I would say. What I have to be on the watch out for myself is this, Bruce. I was so fed up with Lucic in Edmonton and I was so sick of that contract and so relieved when Ken Holland was able to move it that that may color my view going forward of of everything. And I might be too positive about that particular thing to do what you did there, which is a cool, calm, multivariant analysis, trying to assess all the factors and, and, and me just being so happy that Lucic is no longer an oiler that I just think, well, nothing else matters, but other things do matter as you, as you point out. So here's what I'd say about the money thing, like the, the $9 million for Kate's, if you're, if he's, that's a sunk cost, Bruce. He's already, he's already, he's paid that, right? But do you want to keep on losing? Do you want to keep on losing money with this deal, with this player? And you don't. So you got to get the sunk, that money's gone. Like it's already gone. Yes or, no. But, but Bruce, here's the thing. To turn, to if you can make a deal that will improve your team, you have a chance to make the playoffs. And it could be that James Neal's scoring this year, which got, as you pointed out in your piece, got the orders off to such a good start. 
uh, early in the year, those eight goals in the first six games. And his his overall play, which includes the power play performance, frankly, they might have been, I'll, I'll grant you, they, they were the same at even strength this year. I'll, I'll accept that. But Neil's performance on the power play was exceptional and was way better than anything we were going to see from Lucic on the power play or that he did in Calgary on the power play. That could be the difference between making the playoffs or not, the Edmonton Oilers. And that's worth a lot of money. That might be worth $9 million there. And in the, and if, the if you make the playoffs, what's that worth to player happiness, to keeping Connor McDavid happy at Edmonton? So there, there's the, the money in the end, if it leads to making the playoffs or if it's a significant contribution to that, and that, it might be a, a stretch to say adding Neil to your team was a significant contribution, but I think it was one of the factors in the Oilers being a better team this year was getting rid of uh, Lucic and having Neil. The primary comparison you're making in your article is between Lucic in Calgary this year and mm-hmm. Neil in Edmonton this year. And if I was to make write this article, I would make the my primary point of comparison wouldn't be that. It was would be what Milan Lucic gave in Edmonton last year right. as compared to what Neil gave this year. And Neil and, and Lucic in Edmonton last year was 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 terrible. He was a he was the the worst or second worst even strength winger on the Oilers according to our analysis using grade A scoring chance metrics, which I think is information dense and rich statistically. It, it tries to identify on the key play of the game who's made a contribution. Lucic was just so weak at that, and he was terrible on the power play. He just just he didn't provide physical play. So when I look at that compared to what Neil provided this year, which was excellent, strong to excellent play on the power play, and according to our, our analysis using grade A scoring chances, was actually a was actually a fairly okayish, kind of middle of the road NHL winger. wasn't the worst guy on the team, you know he wasn't that was Jujar Kara. He he wasn't that kind of liability to the team at even strength. He was actually okay at even strength. So when I compare that to what Lucic gave to the team, it's like. That's a win for the Oilers. Now, maybe the Flames, maybe there's something about Lucic's performance that was also a win for the Flames this year. And I can't comment on that because I haven't done that kind of hard work, breaking down the videotape and looking at Lucic in depth to say that. But I'm going to say the statistics um, that are available aren't, they're they're kind of, I would call them low information statistics, except for his points. And, And at even strength, Neil and Lucic's points are awash. But what they don't tell us is Lucic's real contribution on defense. Was he a major liability on defense or not? I'm saying it's hard to gather that, and we might disagree on that. But I'm saying from the statistical evidence at hand, I can't confidently say one way or another if he was a strong defensive player or not. What I know in his last two years at Edmonton was he was a weak, very weak defensive winger. Just unacceptably weak. So maybe he turned that around in Calgary, because it's certainly well within his power to do that if he made up his mind to do that maybe that's what happened so i would say it could be a win-win but for the oilers definitely a win moving lucic and having neil in his place on the roster plus add in the expansion draft the seattle expansion draft thing which may not turn out to be that big an issue in the end but man it's sure nice to think in edmonton that we could maybe to protect four defensemen Yes, and not have to protect Lucic as one of the forwards, which would be a like just like a massive migraine headache killer of a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my argument. There's way more flexibility for sure. I mean, Calgary, if in fact they do have to protect uh, Lucic, almost certainly won't go with the four-four-one because then they're only able to protect three other forwards. So maybe they wind up having to expose a defenseman because they kind of feel obliged to go 7-3-1 because they have to take yeah. the spot for, for Lucic. There is uh, some talk in Calgary, and who knows whether it's scuttlebutt or any basis in reality, that Lucic might waive his uh, no-movement clause for the specific pur- purpose of the expansion draft, uh, knowing full well that Seattle is unlikely to invest yeah. Uh, in that contract, unless they really want to name player, in which case he moves to a nice coastal city and is a big man on campus kind of thing. So, I mean, it's not like people are asking, why would he think of doing that? Well, you know, why not? Anyway, to help the uh, Flames, to help the to team. To help the he, Flames. I mean, he, if I'm... If he knows I'm they're the, not taking him. If I'm the Flames GM, I'm going to Milan and saying, 
Well, we know you like playing with Sam Bennett and Dylan Dubé, but the only way we can protect both of your line mates is if you agree to waive for this thing, and we don't think they're going to take you, and and your agent will uh, confirm that. And, you know, so it's it's a very realistic outcome that that won't be part of the scenario, but that's the Flames' worry now, not the Oilers. The Oilers can do what they want, and like you say, if they had Lucic here, it might make the difference between, you know, having to expose a Caleb Jones or a Kyler Yamamoto because they had this obligation. And maybe you would have waived for the Oilers and maybe you wouldn't have. I mean, who knows? But uh, at least they don't have to worry about that. James Neal will be exposed in that expansion draft, 100%, unless he's bought out first. And they won't take him. And so, Bruce, I think that, I think Lucic, do you know, do you recall in the last expansion draft, did any players who had no movement clauses wave i think a couple of them did didn't they and and left themselves open i didn't they somebody suggested one someone suggested flurry had done that mark andre flurry and, yeah and because pittsburgh really wanted to protect uh, matt murray and of course you can only protect one goalie uh and i but, i did, but he i wants, didn't flurry get a chance to, to move well he was willing to get a fresh start because he'd been backing up Matt Murray for two years and so maybe he wanted to go somewhere where he could yeah, play. So it's certainly that's writing on the wall, but right. was there anyone that made the decision, that calculation that we're, we're thinking Lucic might make where they're not going to take me anyway. So I'll wave it and help my team. I think there might've been one case of that. And I can't say for sure it's unusual. And it was hoped that other players would, and they didn't like, I remember right. that definitely like maybe Dion Phaneuf, it was hoped he would, and he didn't. And I'm just, this is all. I haven't done the research, so it's I'm just too long ago, to and I, just, I don't have the memory I once but did. But it's unusual. Time. But I could see Lucic doing it. He's a reasonable, like he's a proud man. Like you can see that. But he's also it strikes me as listening to him. He's also reasonable. Mm-hmm. They're not going to take him, and it would be a way to help the team that he's sticking right. with, which which any player might want. And the way the way you framed it, you know, you will lose your line mate, buddy, if you don't. If you right. don't do this thing, uh, might be or persuasive. the fans are going to hate you because you took a spot and they lost a favor. You'll be a hero because, in this city, you know, my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. There, there's it's it's a complicated issue. I, I guess my bottom line is that from a Calgary perspective, they garnered enough uh, things in the trade. You know, the money, the cap retention, the draft pick that it's a it's a worthwhile investment for them. And as for your statement about sunk cost. Until the Oilers made that trade, the Lucic contract was a $42 million mistake by Peter Shirelli. By making the trade, they turned it into a $51 million mistake. I mean, those costs weren't sunk until they agreed to pay Neil full ticket, even as Lucic's contract was going to be diminished down the stretch because so much of it had been paid in advance. I'm going to say the con the, the the cost is sunk because the second you sign the contract, it's done. Like, there's no getting out of it. So oh. it, in that way, it's... Like it's that's that was a decision and like it was all done on July 1st or July 2nd, whatever, 2016. Right. That's when you make the mistake. That's the sunk cost. Like it's it's old. 42 million was sunk. You're all locked. 51 million. You know, the difference is what wasn't sunk. And that's what Daryl Cates had to agree to when this was done. And Daryl Cates, for all that, uh, you know, he deserves, I think, some credit for eating. We I think you wrote a post at one point detailing some 20 plus million dollars in yeah. contracts that Daryl Cates had eaten that was sort of over and above cap hit, either top front loaded, back loaded contracts coming, going, you know, however the math worked out, the Oilers always seem to be paying extra, but never more so than in this one case where it, it adds up to about $9 million for this single transaction. D- Daryl Cates has shown with, like, he hasn't always made the right decisions. That's obvious. But in terms of his intention, as as seen by money spent in the farm system, in in extra scouting at the pro level, in extra management, when it, you know whatever you need, you got in in paying front loading contracts, sending contracts to the to the AHL, he has paid tens of millions of dollars. It's fair to say more than 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 the EIG ownership would have paid, like under their 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 type of management. So it hasn't always been wise spending. We can say that, but is he's certainly been willing to pay, pay, pay. So, and you know, then there's the, you know, that's not going to be a weenie deal. Cause that's just a can of worms for everybody. Uh, uh, Bruce, 
let's talk about the Oilers' defense. The three not-so-easy steps that the Oilers can make to fix their defense and to turn it upside down. And here's my, when I say turn it upside down, here's what I mean. I think this year, if you look at the regular six defensemen, um, the best puck movers on that team were the best, and this includes puck carrying, which are Darnell Nurse, indisputably the top puck mover on the team because of his points per game over time over the last three or four years. Darnell Nurse, number one, and then Ethan Barron Clefbaum next. Kind of you could you could you could argue who was better at that. Those are the top three guys. And then below them are Russell Larson and Benning. To turn it on your head, you take Darnell Nurse, Oscar Clefbaum, and Ethan Bear, and they're not the one, two, three guys, they're the four, five, six guys. And you get three guys who are better than them, or who are all gonna make ma- more major contributions to grade A chances, more points per game probably as well, than Nurse Larson and Bear. That's the transformation of this defense that I'm looking to see, Bruce, and it's possible. And two of the solutions are, are, are relatively, one of them's pretty easy. You, you, you finally bite the bullet and you move out Matt Benning, who's overpaid for a defenseman who plays 13 minutes a game, and that's all the coaches trusted him for, who's a, a, a really nice player in a lot of ways, solid third-pairing D-man. You move him in trade uh, to another team, and that opens up a spot on the bottom pairing, either for Caleb Jones or Evan Bouchard. So step one's easy. Let's, uh, let's, I'll let you talk after each step. So what do you think of step sure. one? Oh, well, I like Matt Benning, but uh, you're right. The coaches didn't play him a lot. And I think part of that was uh, as he was returning from uh, uh, concussion and inner ear issues that he developed in this past season. And uh, that might make the, the trade a little bit uh a little bit more complicated. Uh, of course, he's a restricted free agent now. The artist could simply walk away. Uh, they could talk to him about signing him for less money, which I think is a distinct possibility. You know, say, now that you're established as a third-pairing guy, well, we can go out on the market and find a third-pairing guy for $1.2 million. Uh, How does that sound? You know, or like, I don't see him coming back in the same price range. So it, it's... Um, uh, it, it's a distinct possibility that uh, that he moves on for sure. Would you be okay with that? Uh, depending on how they're planning to replace him, I mean, I think Evan Bouchard is kind of the obvious choice to move into the right to the cycle on the right side of the defense, and there you have a significant improvement in the puck moving department. There's no question. I, I like, you know, the idea of Benning as a seventh D-man is quite appealing. Like, if you can get him to agree to a, a million two or a million dollars a year contract, and he's kind of your seventh D-man with, you know, protection for Bouchard, you know, developing more. Mm-hmm. But, um, so that's a thought. But I, I think you can get something for, for Benning. You know, you could get a draft pick, and the Oilers need draft picks. Yeah. I think it's I think it's time. You know, Bruce, his puck moving, his puck moving just isn't there. It's not what the level they need to take the next step as a team. And that's the hard decision I would make as the manager. Like, it's just time. To, we got this guy, Evan Bouchard. You look at his numbers. They're, they're the numbers that you see from a defenseman who could actually run and be one of the best attacking demon in the NHL, like in the top 30. That's what we're looking at when we look at his AHL numbers and his junior numbers. It's time. And, and uh, we've got to make... He, in the modern NHL, if you don't move a contract, you're locked in. It's not like you can make that decision in training camp. If NHL only contracts, unless you're going to eat it in the AHL, which they might do. I mean, it's possible, but that's just, it's rarely done. So I, I think if you're going to make the move, you got to open up that roster spot like they did with moving out Sakura last year, which opened the door for mm-hmm. Ethan Bear. That's the hard decision that you had to make. I wasn't completely on side with it. I liked Sekera as a player, but it was a tough decision, but I think it was the right one. We can see with Ethan Bear's development, and I think they have to open things up for Bear, or excuse me, for Bouchard and Caleb Jones. So for to get both of them in the bottom six, which I think would be a dynamite bottom six, actually, like would get the job done defensively and really pro- provide a lot of punch. You also have to move Chris Russell. And mm-hmm. th- he may not want to move, right? Because he's got right. a no-movement clause. He can pick half the teams that are right up against the cap and sol- have solid defensive cores. He can he he can thwart a move in many ways if he wants to I think, but what I would say to Russell, like if I was to talk to him honestly about it, is 
you're the seventh D man on this yeah. team now, Chris. And if you want to go out as that, we made the deal, and, and we will. We obviously we're gonna we have to honor that. But we we will. We're actually good with you in a seventh D man role on this team. But that's what you are. That's what that's probably what you're going to be. We're gonna play these other guys ahead of you, and you got you should know that going into camp now. Do you want that or do you want it? We, we will work with you on finding the right team for you in a trade. Um, if that would also work, like, is there realistically a team that, that will trade for you and not, we don't have to take back too big of a poison pill. Um, and, and I think that this is like the Lucic deal, Bruce, in that Lucic didn't have much value to the Oilers because they had some tough wingers, big tough wingers and Cassian and Kara. They didn't really need Milan Lucic. Um, but other teams needed his and toughness Maroon. and Maroon who they got, you know, other teams needed his toughness. So there was one team out there that would had more value, more of a hankering for Lucic than the Oilers did. I think there's going to be teams out there for Chris Russell who will need a veteran, uh, D man who can play either side, kill penalties, be a good example, be a shot blocker and only earn $1.5 million in salary, even though he's got a cap it. So it's not going to be a cap team going to be a team that's with a broke owner who wants a decent player at 1.5 million dollars and russell is i think a 1.5 million player in the nhl objectively he could get that he's not that bad so i think they will find a buyer for him and they might even get back some kind of player like i don't i i think that he's not i like chris russell as a defenseman in a lot of ways so he's just not right for the oilers who don't need defensive defensemen they need puck movers well, he's a he's a, a interesting player for a budget team, you know, that has uh, you know serious money problems. I mean, you can look at in the same boat as what we were just talking about. Daryl Cates is currently two and a half million dollars ahead of Chris Russell's payment. You know, he's he's earned um, uh, fourteen and a half of the sixteen million dollar contract he's been paid, and he's only got a million and a half left to run for the for you know the last one of the four seasons. So it would be another case where uh, uh, Cates will have paid for two and a half million out of his four million dollar cap hit, and the other team would would have to make room for the cap hit, but uh, do so at a much more affordable price. You know, they'd only owe him under forty percent of his cap hit in real real dollars, and by the time that got clawed back with escrow and ten percent and so on, it'd probably be a million. So uh, for a team in financial difficulty. Uh, there would be some real appeal to that. Whether you would trade him for another player with a, you know, a contract that's, you know, to be paid in full coming the other way, well, that's one possibility. I mean, I floated the name of Antti Branta as a possible, you know, a goalie solution that's got a one year left at four and a quarter million dollars, and you were able to somehow work out a trade for a goalie uh, for Russell uh, that. You know, obviously, it would have to make sense for the other for the other side. But in that case, they have a you know they have a good goalie in the wings in Aiden Hill. Maybe that's a deal they would think about making because it would save them some real dollars. And in the meantime, it doesn't affect the Oilers' cap situation other than they've now solved their second goalie issue, and now they opened a space for Caleb Jones to cheaply solve the third defense issue. You know, so it yeah. it, it, it there's you know, these trades these days in the cap era are very complicated. And uh, the contracts and some of the wrinkles in the contract just add to that complexity. But uh, there, there's potentially a market there. And just from the player's perspective, I mean, Chris Russell is still, what is he, 32 now? 33. 33 now. So, I mean, he's, he's nearing the sunset years of his NHL. And, I mean, if he chooses to stay in Edmonton and be in the press box, signing that next contract is not going to be an easy thing for him. Whereas if he goes to, let's say, Florida, and he plays regular minutes, you know, maybe he uh, uh, maybe he earns a contract in place, or maybe, you know, I mean, he's still a viable player in the league. Maybe that'll help him out in the uh, whatever deal he signs after that. So he's got to think of his own future, and I don't imagine that he sees sitting in the press box for the majority of time, and he's, you know, he's already got a taste of that. This year, Dave Tippett did make him a coach's decision on a number of occasions, so he may think, I'd rather play on a team where I'm in the top six as opposed to, uh, 
uh, one of the choices to be made on a, on a nightly basis. So, uh, you know, the player will have some control over that. And obviously he does have that 15 team no move clause. And honestly, if I'm the GM talking to his agent, I'm saying, well, I'm going to explore all the possibilities and I'm going to run them by you and I'm going to let you, you know, uh, I have this 15 teams. I know I can trade them to, but if I find one of the other teams that really wants and we think it's a fit, let's talk. And we yeah. can, you know, so, and hopefully he's out of name. I mean, he's gotten uh, four good years in Edmonton now, and, and uh, uh, it's, you know, it may be time to move on. He has moved around in his career. For, I agree. I really like how he's, he's, the owners have gotten full value from this player. He's been a strong player in those four years. So, but I, the point that you make about him wanting, you know, having the possibility, he could go to another team if he plays well, then he can get another contract. It depends what he th- he's thinking. Does he just want to play? If he just wants to play one more year, well, stay in Edmonton. But if you want to play, maybe get another contract for two, three years, go to another city and because he can still play. He just needs a team where they need that kind of defenseman. And that kind of defenseman is still valuable in the NHL. And he could find that team. So I think he's going to. That's my bet, is he will be moved. Uh, Bruce, the last step would be, and this is more, uh, this is the one where I'm not fully convinced because it, there's, it's contingent. I was, I've been against moving out one of the top four demon unless you can get a better player. So I, I think Adam Larson overall this year at even strength was as good as any Oilers defenseman, if not better. He was so, especially in those last two or three months, he was a beast in his own zone. It's fantastic. He was healthy. He was strong. He was moving the puck okay, which for him is good. And he was defending like a monster. He, he just was shutting down players here, there, and everywhere. So I'm not keen about him leaving because that's the kind of defenseman that can help you win in the playoffs, even though Larson wasn't that player in the playoffs this year for, for what it, we don't know the reason. He was injured, like we know that. So... Um, I'm not keen on moving him, Bruce, but if you can bring in Tyson Berry, and, and again, so this is highly speculative on my part. I didn't watch Tyson Berry play much this year. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a really bad idea um, to bring in Tyson Berry because maybe he's such a defensive liability and maybe his offensive game has slipped. But he's only 29. Um, he could be... Uh, a strong, you know, if you go by his three most recent seasons, this is a guy who really moves the puck well, puts up points, and is a strong attacker. And I just love the idea of Clefbaum and him together. Clefbaum being kind of the defensive presence on the, not the main puck carrier, because I don't think Oscar Clefbaum is a, that special as a puck mover. He's okay. Um, but put him with a really strong puck mover, suddenly things look a lot different and have nurse and bear in the other group. Well, we saw the puck moving there when nurse in, you know, together they were pretty good. And then if you have Jones and Bouchard, suddenly you have three pairs and all of them can really move that puck, Bruce. God, I'd love to see that. So you don't have Paul coffee on your defense. You don't have that number one guy, but you have kind of coffee by committee and a, a coffee clutch. And mm-hmm. maybe that'll work. Maybe. And maybe that's what, that's how I see along with getting another goalie in here and a winger for McDavid, that's the, the the recipe. And I think you can afford that if you move out Larson's contract. It would depend. I see Barry because he's his, the shine is off of, off of him a bit because of what happened in Toronto. He might sign yeah. a one-year deal or a two-year deal at a reasonable amount of money. Um, that might be the market for him. And you'd have to analyze the market better than I've done to know that. And I, I, that's my next step is to look at how all these other teams line up and turning and wanting a defenseman. But what do you think of that idea? Uh, well, I've liked Barry for, uh, for a long time as a, you know, as an offensive defenseman, uh, I've certainly seen enough games where he killed the Oilers. Holy moly. Did he ever clean up on, on the Oilers, uh, defensive zone, uh, a few times over the years that he was with the uh, avalanche. Uh, I did, I saw him bad in the playoffs with Toronto. I just, I thought he was struggling and, uh, you know, he wasn't producing much offense. Um, he's, um, uh, 
I mean, I don't know what the ask would be. I believe he's in the range of uh, five million. Just let me double check here. It's in my post. Oh. Uh, five point seven five. Is that oh, wowza. Okay. Uh, let me just have a look. Five and a half, maybe. And I think Colorado year six, retained. Year and six million last year. Wow. His salary yeah. was six million. That's what he got, and that's what's wow. going to be in his head, right? I got six right. million last year. So he's thinking anything with a six would be good. Mm -hmm. But uh, is he going to get anything with a six? I doubt it. No, he's not, not here. He's, I think he's in Jake Gardner country, Bruce. Not like, here. Yeah, well, maybe so. Yeah, Jake Gardner, he wound up signing a long-term deal, but for a lot less money than some people were expecting. There's a lot of right Ds available, actually. Mm -hmm. So there's Peter Angelo, not coming here. Oh. Shattenkirk, not coming here. Shattenkirk had a really strong offensive year. There's Sammy Votnin, who had a down year. Um uh, but is you know he's always been a pretty good D man. Uh, Eric Gustafson in Cal from Calgary. I don't know how he played in the playoffs, but that guy can play. He can move the puck. There's Mark Pissick, who a lot of people like as a two way player. T.J. Brody. He's a left shot, like Gustafson, who plays the right side. And I don't you know he was a top four defenseman in Calgary this year. I you know so there are, there's a number of options for other teams right. if you're looking for that. So it's it's not like Barry's the only guy out there. Although that could quickly change when Peter Angelo and Shattenkirk sign and maybe Gustafson sign with their existing team. So maybe Brody. I don't know. Yeah. Well, my thought is if the Oilers find a way to get both uh, Bouchard and Jones into the lineup on a, you know every night or close to every night basis, that maybe they're going to want to stick with their one um, solid sort of de defense first guy. Especially if Russell's moving on to, to stick yeah. with Larson rather rather than go all puck movers. Yes, uh, I slightly disagree with your original premise that Nurse is the top puck mover on the Oilers. Uh, you know, he's the top offensive defenseman from tr puck transporting and also just by being the most um, dynamic in terms of jumping into the play and getting into the offensive zone. My uh, Ethan Bear is the best puck mover in the lot in terms of making that first pass and putting a, making a quick decision, put the puck on the tape. And as a rookie, he showed a lot of promise and we can expect him to, to improve in that respect. But if, if you add the other young fellows in Bouchard and Jones to bear, now you've already, you've got three guys that are sort of 23 and under that are uh, first and foremost puck moving defenders. So you want a little bit of veteran solidity around them, and I'm not sure Tyson Berry is that guy. Um, but uh, I do agree that they, you know, they seriously need to upgrade their defense, and they do have internal solutions, and maybe they can go out and get one outside guy. Um, the the other thing is, if you don't sign Berry, you're leaving the door wide open for for Bouchard to run the power play, and maybe that's your best bet anyway, right? Now that's going to cost you more money if you put a young guy in that spot and he puts up a lot of points. Or you put Barron there um, mm -hmm. over Clefbaum, although Clefbaum did such a fantastic job. I'm not looking to move him off the power play, honestly. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think the, the point you're making, I would say I, 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 I agree with kind of both of them on it. Like Bear and, and Nurse are fairly close. According to our work, Bruce, like looking at the, the, the grade A chances and who makes the major contributions to them, Nurse and Bear were tied. Okay, so... It's okay. it's flip a coin. I, I'm picking Nurse because he had more points uh, per mm -hmm. per sixty than, and he consistently leads the team in that over the years. So uh, combine that with yes, his contributions to Grade A chances. I'm I'm putting Bear on the uh, peg ahead of Bear, but it's Bear's a Bear's a young guy, and he's going to step up one more notch probably this coming year. I'm but, and I also between offensive yeah. defenseman versus puck moving defenseman. Yeah. When I think of the latter category, I think of the guy who can make that quick first pass. And I'm not sure Darnell Nurse is the first name that pops to mind in that front. It is not the first name that pops to mind. Um, yeah, and I like I like the idea of having Lar keeping Larson on the team. I it's it's intriguing because if you trade Larson and you you might be able to get back a winger who makes less money. Um, who's who can help you, who could solve the other problem with McDavid, or a center, like the third-line center that the Oilers think they some people think the Oilers need. Um, you trade Larson, and maybe you get back a center who's earning $2 million a year, and you, you open up some cap room, 
and you solve another problem on the team. And so that's the attraction of the Larson trade too, is opening. Um, of course, if you sign Barry, then that all that cap space is gone. So, um, and I, so I'm kind of more iffy on that th- phase three there, but it's, it's certainly worth considering. Um, and um, I really like the idea, Bruce, you, we've got to get better puck moving and offensive. And, and there's only one, you know, they've, they've simply got, they've got to find a way to, to do phase one and phase two of that, of what I'm suggesting here and getting Jones and Bouchard in the lineup. I just think I'll be, I'll be disappointed if they don't do that uh, this summer. The other thing is more 50-50 thing. It could, it could be really interesting and it's certainly worth exploring. Bruce, let's, there's, um, there's some talk around the plus minus number, Leon Dreisaitl, and we've been hearing this all year. And one of the things, like someone who evolving wild who uses on ice numbers, and on mm-hmm. ice numbers are NHL plus minus, uh, they're Corsi, they're Fenwick. All of these are what I call on-ice numbers. And what they essentially right. attempt to do is when you're out on the ice, they add up how many goals or shots you're out on the ice for, and they compare that to how many you're out against for. And they, mm-hmm. they say, that's a measure of your two-way play. That's the, the basic idea of those stats is to say that's a that's a measure of your two-way play. And, and I've never fully bought into those stats, trusted those stats, um, because I, I, I see them as they don't actually zero in on what your individual contribution was to those goals and those shots and those scoring chances. They just say how the team did when you're on the ice and they don't actually focus on that. And so I'm not sold on those stats. And when, and, and I think when you, when you do just use those stats to rate players, you come up with the, the, the equation equals you saying Valerie Nakushkin was a superior player to Leon Dreisaitl this year. And that's my that's my proof that this doesn't work as a solid way to evaluate players. And I think people are convinced this is a solid way to evaluate players, which is why they stick with it. They say, well, they, no, I'm right. Nakushkin was better than Dreisaitl. And I just think, like, no, you're, you're getting it wrong. Like, this stat doesn't say what you think it says. It's not that solid, solid a way to evaluate two-way play. This is really coming to a head on plus minus this year for Dreisaitl because people didn't vote for him for MVP because they said, well, it would be the first time a minus player um, got to be the MVP. And that may be the case if Dreisaitl wins. He was minus seven this year, NHL plus minus. But the NHL plus minus is like a double whammy in terms of being a bad stat or maybe even a triple whammy, Bruce. Triple whammy. Because it's a very low event stat. It's It's... And goals, you know, the difference between a grade A scoring chance and a goal is often just luck. It's just a bounce. So I, I, I'm much more likely to look at grade A scoring chances in evaluating a player than I am goals. Plus, there is the, the, the really, the real whammy is that it includes goals against when you're on the power play and when you're out there with an empty net behind you. So Leon Dreisaitl is minus seven this year, Bruce. Mm-hmm. But he was out for 10 power play goals against. And from our own analysis, he was only at fault on one of those one of those 10 goals. He was also on the ice for two empty net goals against. So 12 goals against on his minus seven. If you, if you eliminated those 12 goals against, he goes to plus five. It was, right actually more, it was actually more empty net goals than that, David, because basically every empty net goal scored against the Oilers, like every power play goal, Leon's on the ice. So is Connor, typically. Well, it was two. Yeah. Uh, I had it. Maybe it was a differential. I looked at natural statric for for that number of two. Maybe it was a differential of two because he was on the ice, of course. Oh, you're right. Some empty net goals the Oilers scored. So. Uh yeah. I think I'll have to go back and reevaluate that, Bruce. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm mis miscounting that. So anyway, he's a plus player if you eliminate those two situations. But right. if you drill right. down further, Bruce, and do what we do, which is okay, on the goals he was on the ice for. How many of them did he make a major contribution for? And on the goals against, how many was he the major culprit? And when you do that, Bruce, he was. What we found was, of the goals he was on the ice for at even strength, he was. Uh, he made a major contribution to 64 of them, and he made a major mistake on just 28 against. Okay. So this gives him, under our system, a plus minus of plus 36. That was his number. It's the highest raw plus minus total on the Oilers by far mm-hmm. plus 36 mcdavid connor mcdavid was plus 26 
Kyler Yamamoto was plus 26, and Zach Cassian was plus 25. So mm -hmm. Dreisaitl, in that regard, was, when it comes to actually making plays to lead to goals for and mistakes on goals against, he was plus 36. That's, to me, the plus-minus number that uh, makes sense. Now, the only problem is we can't compare that plus-minus number to every other player in the NHL because we haven't done that video analysis, and it's very hard to do that kind of work. Just two guys in Edmonton. You'd need a whole team of people doing it. But guess what? There are whole teams of people doing this work, drilling into these stats, drilling into on-ice events. Where they, so they're, it's, they don't have low-information stats. They have information-rich stats. They're not public, though. No one has those numbers except for the NHL teams. And the people who generally comment on NHL stats in public, just fans like us, they're not going on that information-rich uh, data. They're just going on the publicly available stuff, and I think it's it's leading them to make bad arguments about Leon Dreisaitl. That's my point. Yeah, well, the weakness to our own system is that um, wingers and centers and defensemen are, are three different categories. That They totally. each have different levels of yeah. defensive responsibility with the centers being the most balanced of the three. The wingers, you would expect to have more to do with offense and defense, and, of course, the defensemen the other way around, and the centers are in the middle of everything. So that plus 36, I mean, 28 mistakes on goals against is a pretty high number, but it's overwhelmed by the 64 contributions to goals for. Uh, the NHL's weakness is, uh, well, first of all, just the on-ice capacity. I mean, you talk about on-ice stats, the player is just one of five guys on his team contributing to, to the stat and just one of 10 on the ice contributing. So you could say 10% of it, is, it might be due to any individual player. Uh, in the case of the NHL, though, that 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 huge weakness that was uh, in the original plus-minus, uh, and it pains me to say this because for a long time, plus-minus was the most advanced stat we have, and I hate hearing how uh, some... Uh, modern statisticians and analysts just pound on on plus minus, uh, but with some justification because this business of including shorthanded goals, uh, yeah, as counting against, but power play goals not for because he should be expected to score on the power play and not be scored on. Well, Leon Drysaddle in 2019-20, he was on the ice for 56 power play goals by Edmonton. They scored 59 on the year. He was on the ice for 56 of them. He was on for 10 shorthanded goals against. That's a differential of plus 46, the most of any player in the league. And yet, for his official plus minus, he gets minus 10 for his contributions <laughs> to the best power play in 40 years. He gets minus 10. So... That, you know, it corrupts the data, unfortunately. And some players, it bounces out. All situations, players will get the same kind of chances the other way to score on the other team's empty net as, they, as they're likely to get scored on their own. And, and Leon had some of that in the empty net, but he didn't put in near the time on the penalty kill that he did on the power play. So there's a net deficit for that. And he got burned, you know, on the traditional plus minus. Many voters voting on that alone. I mean, plus minus, I still use it. I've used it uh, as long as it's been available as a quick and dirty reference. Is this guy outscoring? Is he getting outscored? And then the next question is why? And you can look at that and say, well, why? Well, he's on the power play and he's not on the penalty kill. He's an offensive player, so he's going to get ripped on, defense, on, on half of the equation without making it up on the other half. There's always considerations. Now, what's his role? Where, where, who's he playing against? There's lots of other things. So the plus minus is just a starting point. But right away, you need to make the adjustments, get rid of all that odd man stuff and get down to five by five. And in that sense, the modern stat of five versus five plus minus, or better yet, goals four percentage, is a purer, better stat than traditional plus minus. Oh, so you were right. Like, I, uh, I just looked up the numbers. I think mm -hmm. I have this right now. Mm -hmm. uh, for empty net goals, <laughs> mm -hmm. I was I was off by quite a large number there. It wasn't two. It was 12 that Dreisaitl was on the ice for. If I'm and a few, no, and no, no, a few just wait. This is just, no, just wait. I got it wrong here. I'm looking at the wrong number again. Sorry, Bruce. I keep screwing up. No. Oh, it's 12 shots against and 12 goals against. It is 12. 12, shot, 12 shots against. Sounds all like of them David Riddick was in net. 
Uh, yeah, so Leon's on the ice for, for 10 power play goals and 12, 12 empty net goals. 22 of the goals, 22 of his minus marks are basic BS in terms of like, you know, truly evaluating. Like he might have made some of the mistakes on the empty net goals maybe. But, you know, how much are you going to uh, burn a guy? Most of those are like not even a chances. Like, they, you know, they're just far from far away. And right. anyway, they, 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 they've made the NHL plus minus number as bad as it can be by including um, those situations in them. And as misleading and, and Dreisaitl's number, case in point, totally misleading. And that doesn't even factor in the whole thing of whether he's part of the play or not on any of those plays. So just just the structure, it's structurally unsound. And to, to use that as for an MVP vote is as, is as bad as using on-ice numbers conclusively to say player X is better than player B, which ends up with Nikushkin being better than um, Dreisaitl. So both of those modes of of using stats, it's bad. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue, Bruce, bad use of stats. Don't don't go that far with you know plus minus or with on ice stats. You're, it's just fraught, I think. And I and our and our the other problem with our numbers is like you can get around what you're talking about the comparison by comparing centers to centers on yeah, different 100%. teams, defenseman to defenseman, and wingers to wingers, and and on your own team only doing that. So drives it'll. Dreisaitl's best plus minus number is all the more special because he beat out all the wingers who have much less defensive responsibility. But maybe there is a defenseman who's actually a better two-way player than Leon, but the defensemen are just in that position where they're going to make mistakes on goals against because they're their defensemen. The other problem with our work is, of course, it's subjective. Like, we try to make it, we have set guidelines, you go over my work. We're doing the best we can. We're, you know, we, we have a system in place to reduce the subjectivity as much as we can, but it is subjective. And this is, you know, the people who, the NHL analysts who do this kind of work, there's also a subjective element to their work. And they try to get around it and have, you know, systems in place to correct for it, but it's hard to do it. And, and um, so this is, there's no, there's really, if you're going to use numbers to rate players, just I'm going to say be careful, be careful in being definitive, um, and, and put just back off a little bit from your certainty. Because if you have that certainty, you're I'm I was about to say you're an idiot, but you you kind of are. Like you should just take it easy on it because you're going to make idiotic comments at least now and then if you put all of this weight in these numbers, which aren't deserve which isn't deserved huge difference between quick and dirty and be all and end all like if you're going to put everything on plus minus and you're you're asking for trouble i mean any stuff i mean there you need context for everything right i mean a guy's more likely to score 15 goals playing on uh, Connor mcdavid's wing than he is playing on riley Sheehan's wing right and, and exactly the, the box well, cars don't necessarily show you that either right well look at so, cassian's strong that's plus minus number are goals yes. plus minus as soon as i said that i thought oh doesn't make our number look very good there because cat but cassian this is exactly what happened he was out there he con contributed to a lot of goals for made a major contribution but he did that in large part because he was playing with connor mcdavid and so you need to factor that in as well so there's all of this context and in, he was a winger yeah and he was a winger he's got lots of chance and he doesn't have a ton of defensive responsibility you know he's He's got some, he's got to cover that point, especially in key moments, not allow that outside shot right on net in a key moment in a playoff game. That would be nice. But, um, Don't Bruce, let's, started. yeah, let's not get started. Uh, what about, uh, let's, let's finish off with one little thing all year long, all, all, excuse me, all playoffs long. We've been hearing what a great job Cam Talbot has done in net for the flames. And he has been apparently spectacular. And Brian Burke, but Brian Burke was saying uh, yesterday on Oilers Now, he said, on Thursday on Oilers Now, he said, the Flames need more out of their top scores. You can't, ex you can't count on spectacular goaltending every game if you're going to win a playoff series. So how did that, what happened in game six, Bruce? Well, the scorers didn't score and the goalies didn't goal. You know, they, they, the goal, goalies. I mean, I, I watched... Uh, I ran through the uh, rewind of the game last this morning, the Calgary game, 
for whatever reason, I always seem to enjoy the game that Calgary gets eliminated from the playoffs every year. Can't imagine why. And, yeah. And I watched all seven of the Dallas goals, which they scored in succession as Calgary blew a 3 nothing lead and crashed and burned 7-3. to three. And by our objective scoring method at the Cult of Hockey, where we do blame goals, goalies, for allowing goals on outside shots or for kicking out bad rebounds or for, you know, turnovers or making some sort of mistake, a case could be made that one, that either Calvert or David Riddick made a mistake on all seven of those goals. I think there's, there's one goal where oh. it kind of got tipped on the way through and it fooled Talbot and it went under his stick and through his legs and in at slow speed. But there was, uh, there was four outside shots that went in short side and then the other three were big, juicy rebounds. Two that uh, uh, that Riddick lost right into the blue paint for tap-ins. And the third one, which was the last goal of the game, when Talbot had to come back in to replace Riddick. That's how bad Riddick was, that he couldn't even finish as a mop-up goalie. Where uh, Talbot punted an outside shot right into the slot, right back to Dennis Gurianov, who accepted the gift and deposited his fourth goal of the night. It was as horrible a game of goaltending as I've seen in a long, long time. Oh, poor Cam Talbot. I wonder both, how much that both cost him. Both of them. Yeah. I wonder yeah. how much that cost him because they were like, you know, he was looking probably maybe because he played so well in the other games, maybe he won't bear the brunt of it. But it's it's funny. These playoff games, they tend to make a big impression, especially the deciding game. You know, I even... I, for me, the bloom of the Cam Talbot Rose started to go down a little bit in Game Seven against Anaheim, with the winning goal, which I thought was no, he needed to make that save. He just needed to make that save, and he, and uh, uh, on the seven, on the on the goal ahead goal for Anaheim in the third period, he did not make that save. Anyway, good luck to Cam Talbot. I'm glad that he did well. Oh, and Bruce, how did your Lucic uh, article hold up in light of oh, Game that was, Six? That- that was Bruce, great. How did Lucic I started do, getting uh, I started getting a whole lot of feedback early in the game when <laughs> Lucic took a bad uh, goaltender interference penalty. A little marginal. He bumped a guy that fell into his own goalie, and the ref singled him out. And it was one of those ones. If it had been three nothing the other way, he might not have called it, but he did. And Dallas scored, and that was the beginning of the turnaround. And then, of course, Lucic took a second penalty for puck over glass, and they scored on that one too. So I was getting a lot of feedback, and my my. Uh, Standard response was uh, a gif of uh, of Hannibal from the A team saying, "I love it when a plan comes together." <laughs> I, I I mean I, I, I to be to be totally honest, all the time I was writing that post, I I wanted to write it before Calgary season was over because they were still going and Edmonton wasn't. I thought this may put the X on <laughs> on the Egyptian Calgary. Well, I, I was it does thinking- well. So much the better. I was thinking, Bruce, you might want to, as, as I was reading, I think, Bruce, you might want to wait a day. Because <laughs> your argument, every round of the playoffs that Calgary wins, your argument gets that much stronger for, you know, yeah. whether that's rational or not, that's the fact. Every round that they win, the Calgary fans love Lucic more. Every time he gets in a fight or has a hit in the playoffs or, or makes a good play, your argument just stands up taller, an inch taller. But it, mm-hmm. it, it, it you lost about a foot of height, uh, uh, oh. In one fell game, one f- and with uh, Lucic's play, they, I understand they, they they fell they fell pretty hard, and he uh, didn't have a great last game, and uh, not really many of them did. Boy, that team uh, was funny watching the replay of the game and seeing a quote from uh, from Coach Jeff Ward about how much stronger mentally the team is this year than last year, and how you know last year they crashed and burned with a four goal blowout in Game Five against Colorado, they lost five one. Well. I didn't see much different last night. I saw a bunch of the the big name Flames doing a whole lot of not much, and like say uh, some defensive breakdowns. And once the game went against them, they just seemed unable to stem the tide at all. Well, it was the hockey gourds um, mm-hmm. looking down from on high and saying, "Matthew Kachuk, you are going to pay for what you did to Mark Scheifele. You are not going to get away with it." And um, here's your punishment. You're going to have to watch as your team falls apart on the ice uh, because you've been injured by a hit. Uh, so, of course, that's not what happened in, in real life. But that's what I like to think happened, Bruce, because that hit, I still contend, was a was a reckless 
typically reckless, nasty play by Matthew Kachuk that he's known for and that happens repeatedly when he's out there all too often. Happened again with Shifley. And I don't, I don't, maybe like, did he intend to do it? I don't care what your intent. Like, did you intend to, to go in there recklessly? Did you intend to, to go in there and get a piece of him? Yes, possibly. you did. And you, and you did it in reckless fashion. This is the consequence of your, your play. So I'm tired of the guy. I, I don't I, know about I consequence, him. but I will tell you this. Calgary Flames missed Matt Kachuk and they're nowhere near the same team without him. He's a great hockey player. <laughs> yes. Matt Kachuk's a great hockey player, Bruce. I wish he was an Edmonton Oiler. For all I just said, I wish he was a wish shit. <laughs> so I know the value of that kind of player, that kind of reckless, dangerous, dirty, give uh, aggressive, give it everything you have. Uh, hey, yeah. fearless. Like, honestly, like he is a, he, he took Sorry. on Zach. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, <laughs> he's smart. Like that's, is, is he, was he being afraid then or was he being crafty? I say crafty. And, and he did take on, Cassian in the fight to show that I, I, Afterwards, I, I don't, he did, he did yeah, I don't, I don't see him. I don't see the turtling. If I'm completely honest and in retrospect, I don't know what I said at the time, probably something completely different, <laughs> but I, I do see that he's crafty and that's what drives me crazy even more so because yeah. he's so crafty. Yeah. He's a diabolical mind at work playing hockey and a fantastic hockey player. All right, Bruce. That sounds enough. like the last word. <laughs> <laughs> I think we run out of things to say when we get to Matt Kachuk being a fantastic hockey player. <laughs> he is, and you know it to be true. Oh, he's good. He is very yeah. good. And not the same team without him. I'll stand by that. Yeah. Uh, just takes me back to that weekend in July where <sighs> we get Pulley-Arvey instead of Kachuk. And just think if we had Kachuk, and then they say, oh, we don't have to make Lucic signing. We get Kachuk. Anyway, such is life, Bruce. This is the way of the world. This is the mm -hmm. way it works. Thanks for talking today. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this is another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>